So let's turn to Mark 4:21 through 34. This is where we will consider the wonders of God this morning. Mark 4:21 through 34. Just a few weeks ago, Cody wrote an article for our blog noting some of the the recent tragedies, the acts of violence, the instances of political corruption, and and just the the seeming instability of our our globe as a whole. And he he asked this question. He said, where is the world headed? Have you ever considered this when you see... The, the chaos of the world, and ask, where is this world headed? Well, well, as a church, we've been going through the Psalms together. Uh, Cody has been preaching through them in a series called The Songs of the People of God. And I, and I think the structure of the Psalms gives us a little glimpse into the trajectory of all of creation. Just think of how the Psalms begin in Psalms 1 and 2. In the midst of chaos, corruption, and the raging of nations, God says, I have set my king on Zion's holy hill. And then, when we get to the end of Psalms, in in Psalm 149, we see that the children of Zion are rejoicing in whom? In their king. On Zion's hill. And, and that's where we had our call to worship this morning, Psalm 150, just echoing the praise of the people in the presence of their king, God's kingdom in its fullness. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So while the world is raging and rulers are vying for power, oppression and, and re- rebellion reign supreme... God is establishing his kingdom through his king. This is the divine destiny of the world. And this is where our passage in Mark is pointing us to this morning. Recall the the message of Mark is Jesus, the Messiah, that is the king, the anointed one, the son of God, surprisingly serves and suffers in order to save his people follow him. And the Jesus comes bringing the kingdom of God in the very beginning of his ministry. What does he say? Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the, the whole context of Mark. Jesus bringing the kingdom of God. Most recently, we've been looking at Jesus's teaching. He's teaching in parables. And, and the purpose of these parables, as we learned from earlier in chapter 4, is to not only reveal the kingdom of God, but it's also meant to reveal who are insiders in that kingdom and who are outsiders. Outsiders are hardened by these parables. Insiders have Jesus, and they learn more what these mysteries are. And, and more importantly than that, they are with Jesus. That's the distinction. Insiders of the kingdom are with Jesus. The specific parable we saw was the parable of the the sower and the four soils. And, And there we saw that the seed, the word of God, specifically was this divine message, the gospel of the coming kingdom. In short, it's the revelation of God's coming kingdom. And, and we saw also 
uh, that that parable made clear that this word of the kingdom, this kingdom will bear fruit. That's where it's headed. It, 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 it may land in different hearts of people, but ultimately in the good soil, it will bear fruit. So if we were to distill this parable down to its essentials, the two dominant themes, two dominant ideas we see are revelation and fruit. The kingdom is being revealed, and that kingdom will bear fruit. And you say, why didn't you just say that in the last sermon? And we could have got out of here a lot quicker, right? But that, and you might even be saying to yourself, why are we going through your last sermon again? You don't need to preach it to us. And I agree, but our passage today is made up once again of parables. And remember what Jesus said about the parable of the sower and the four soils. What did he say to his disciples? Mark 4.13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? That's unique to Mark. Why, why would Mark choose to include this? He includes it because right on the back end of that, now we have a series of, of parables, and it's meant to be the paradigm, the parable of the four soils, is meant to be the paradigm by which we understand what follows. So we'll understand our passage today in light of the parable we went through the last time we looked at Mark together. And, and this is what Mark intends for us. So, so just a word about the structure then in light of the parable of the soils. And hang with me here. I think this will help us. You don't, if you're a note taker, you don't have to take notes on all this. But you can if you want. I'm not going to stop you. So in our Bibles, we, we see that our unit today is divided up in in to three separate sections. In my ESV, it's labeled a lamp under a basket, the parable of the seed growing, and the, the parable of the mustard seed. But really what we have here is, is two sets of two parables. It's like, a, it's like two couplets of parables here. First, we have in verses 21 through 20, 23, the parable or the parabolic saying of the lamp under a basket, and it's paired with a parable or saying of the measure in verse, verses 24 through 25. So you have the lamp and the measure paired together. And, and these two together are describing the revelation of the kingdom of God. That's our first unit. The word in uh, the parable of the four soils. Then we have in verses 26 through 29, the parable of the growing seed, and it's paired with, verse, verses 30 through 32, the parable of the mustard seed. And together, these describe the fruitful nature of the kingdom of God. That's our second unit. So you see how the parable of the four soils is mapping right on to our parables today. Revelation and the fruitful nature of the kingdom. Our final two verses then, 33 and 34, offer a summary statement of what uh, of these of these teachings of Christ. So now we're going to actually, I'm going to go through our true outline for the sermon. So if you can start taking notes again if you want. So first, we will see in verses 21 through 25, part one, kingdom revelation requires response. It's verses 21 through 25. Kingdom revelation requires response. Then we'll see in verses 26 through 32, the kingdom of God is inevitable. The kingdom of God is inevitable. And then in verses 33 through 34, we will see that Jesus is the key to the kingdom. 
main idea is Jesus reveals the inevitable kingdom of God and it requires, it demands, it calls for, it compels us to respond to it. So first look with me at verses 21 through 25. We'll see two elements here, as I mentioned, in verses 21 through 23. We will see the revelation of the kingdom. And then in verses 24 through 25, we will see the response to the kingdom. So first consider verses 21 through 23. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? So we're in the, still in the middle of Jesus' teaching of kingdom parables here. Uh, the idea is that this is an ongoing teaching. These aren't just one-off moments. And we get that from verses 33 through 34 where it says at the end of our passage, with many such parables he was speaking to them. So this is ongoing. And we also learn from verses 33 through 34 that this is a mixed crowd again. Because it says that Jesus is explaining everything to his own disciples. While everybody else is hearing it in parables. So it's a, it's a mixed crowd. Remember, the purpose of parables is to distinguish between insiders and outsiders. And Jesus asks a rhetorical question here. He says, is a, is a lamp meant to be covered? No. Well, what then? A lamp is meant to be put on a stand. So let's consider the illustration. Why is a lamp put on a stand? Well, it, a lamp, well, lamp's purpose is to give light. So, so a lamp and the light it gives reveals the lamp itself, right? So the lamp itself is revealed. Luke tells us in a, a passage that could be parallel to this one that when a lamp is put on the stand, people walk into the house and they can see the lamp. That's why it's put on the stand. But the lamp also reveals. It's not only revealed by the light it gives, but it reveals everything else by the light it gives. It exposes by the lamp's light, people can see. So a lamp's purpose is to be revealed in order to be seen and to help see. This is what Mark goes on to say in verse 22, isn't it? This is the reason why the lamp is put on the stand. Verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So the reason Jesus gives for a lamp being put on a stand is this. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nothing is secret except to be brought to light. So what has been hidden? Well, considering the purpose of a lamp that we just talked about, I think one of the things is the lamp itself. It has been brought in, and now it is being revealed. The light is being revealed. Secondly, the other thing that it is, uh, the other thing that has been hidden is everything it exposes. Well, then the next question is, what is this lamp, <laughs> right? So think of our previous passage in the immediate context: the sower and the soils, the revelation of the word, right? If that is what we're mapping onto this, then the revelation of the kingdom is what is being revealed. The kingdom of God is being revealed in the words of Jesus Christ, in the life of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. And the, 
Old Testament, we can see how lamp is used to refer to many things. God himself, the promise of the coming, coming Davidic king, guidance to people, but perhaps one of the more memorable, memorable examples of lamp in the Old Testament is in Psalm 119, 105. Probably have it memorized. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. So the lamp, the light that is being revealed is the kingdom of God, this message of the kingdom. New Testament confirms this. Second Peter 1.19 says that the prophetic word of the gospel is like a lamp shining in darkness. So the word of the kingdom, the revelation of the coming king of, of God in Jesus Christ, this is the lamp. This is the revelation. It is hidden for ages, and now it has been revealed in the coming of Christ, the great mystery that's been revealed, just as we talked about in Mark 4, 1 through 20. But this lamp also reveals, right? It exposes everything else. What exactly is it exposing? What is it revealing? Well, it's revealing who is inside the kingdom and who is outside of it. How does it do that? It does it by exposing insiders and outsiders based on their response to this revelation. Just like the soils, different hearers of the word ultimately reveal their true nature based on whether or not they produce fruit. fruit. That shows if they've truly received this word. The one who responds to the revelation of the kingdom in Jesus, how they respond to that that's going to determine whether they're insiders and outsiders. And that's the point of verses 24 through 25, the response to this revelation. So look with me at verses 24 through 25. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So if the lamp refers to the revelation of the kingdom itself and its purpose is to reveal insiders and outsiders, here in verses 24 through 25, we see how exactly that plays out. The revelation of the kingdom demands and requires a response, and, the ones, and one's response will determine whether they're in or out. And here Jesus uses this illustration that's kind of unfamiliar to us, the measure you use will be measured, the, the measure you use will be measured to you, the measure with which you measure will be measured to you. Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Well, uh, this is fairly agreed upon. What this is referring to is the measurements that were used in the grain market, right? They would have vessels that were supposed to be a certain amount or scales that were supposed to be measuring a certain amount of the wheat, and those could be honest measures or they could be dishonest. Based on the honesty or dishonesty, there would be repercussions for one's actions, right? That's essentially what this is referring to. One commentator notes that this saying essentially means you get back what you give. So how are we to understand uh, this in, in light of our passage well, in, in verse 25, Jesus, said, Jesus explains it. He says, 
The reason you measure, the reason what you measure will be measured back to you is because the one who has more will be given. So to measure justly or unjustly here is to have or to have not. The one who does not have, even what he has, will be taken away. That's the relationship here. This is explaining what these measures are. To, to have or to have not. So, what, it, what is it to have? What does that mean? What does one have? They have the kingdom. That is, the one who receives this kingdom, the revelation of the kingdom in true faith, they will be given greater and greater revelation. And this was certainly true for the disciples, right? Think of the context of Jesus saying this. Right now, it's still kind of a veiled idea of what the kingdom is. And we'll even see this more clearly as, this, as Mark goes on because the disciples will just, like, are these guys really insiders? They don't look like it. But they are with Jesus. They are insiders in the kingdom by virtue of their relationship with him, having received his message of the kingdom, receiving Jesus. And as it goes on, they're going to see more and get more and more revelation. Think of, think of the transfiguration. Think of the miracles they see Jesus do. Think of seeing him go to the cross, die, resurrect, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the establishing of the church. This revelation they receive is more and more and more. And the same is, is true for us, isn't it? We accept the, 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 the call of the kingdom. We, by faith, are united to Christ. And we grow the promise of, of that relationship with Christ. The promise of the gospel is that we will grow in that relationship. We will mature in faith. We will have greater and greater revelation of who God is. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 3.18, isn't it? And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. How? All at once? No. By one degree of glory to another. Greater and greater revelation of who God is in his kingdom. But ultimately, there's even more, right? What the more is that will be added to those who receive this revelation of the kingdom is the fullness of that kingdom at Christ's return. Eternal joy. Eternal life, God Himself. This is what awaits when the kingdom comes in its fullness. There's a, a, a phrase you've, you're probably familiar with that is used to describe this reality of the kingdom as now and not yet. It is here. Christ has inaugurated it in His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we experience the kingdom in a real spiritual sense. And it continues to expand. But the fullness of the kingdom is yet to come. And we can't get this mixed up, right? If this gets reversed, this is where you get some aspects of the prosperity gospel, where it says we should have everything that the kingdom has to offer now. That's just not how it's happening. There is something greater that awaits. 
dwelling with Christ, seeing his face. That's what David talks about in Psalm 17. We think of if, if this is what those who have are going to get more of, then what, is it that, what does it mean that those who have not, even what they have will be taken away? What sense does that make? If you don't have anything, how can something be taken away? Well, they do have something. To have is to have the kingdom, but what they have done is they've traded that for the world. They've made a trade. David reflects on this in Psalm 17. He calls wicked men of the world are those whose portion is in this life. And, And listen to these. These sound like good things. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they have their abundance to their infants. And as for me, though, what does David say? I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. We don't trade the temporary things of this world for the kingdom. If you do, even what you have will be taken away. So the proposition of the kingdom is set before us in Christ. And and these things that David refers to are good things gifts from God, but we cannot get the gifts mixed up with the giver, right? The creator. That's when idolatry abounds, when we miss God and want to trade him for the world. And and Mark gets at this later on. Mark 8, 34 through 36, one of our theme verses we've come to over and over again. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain what? The whole world. They have the world. But you lose your soul. So to reject the revelation of the kingdom of God is to ultimately lose everything. But to have this revelation of the kingdom is to get everything. You may have noticed I skipped verse 23 and 24. Let's look at them now for a moment. I want you to notice how Mark pairs these two parables. He, he, he says in verse 23, if anyone has ears, let him hear. And the last time we saw this phrase, we noted that this means everybody has ears. That means everyone who can hear is accountable to this word. But we also know that it is God who grants us ears to hear. But what follows in, in, verse 30, in verse 24 is this. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. So don't miss what Jesus is doing here. This is, there's a real sense of urgency he's laying before. This, this pay attention to what you hear can literally mean see what you hear. Watch what you hear. Pay attention to it. It's a sense of urgency. You must respond to this reality. You cannot just hear this revelation and walk away and be indifferent to it. To be indifferent to it is to trade it for everything else. But to receive it is to receive the kingdom of God in its fullness. It is is one or the other. And, And why is it so urgent? It's because this is the trajectory of all of history. God's kingdom will come in its fullness. There's nothing that's going to stop it. It is inevitable. 
And this is what Mark points out for us in part two of our passage. In the second set of parables in verses 26 through 32, look with me there now. The kingdom of God is inevitable. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So Jesus makes very clear here that he's describing what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like this. It's like a seed that grows underground, imperceptibly, out of sight, mysteriously, and, and this, the, until it produces a harvest. And this isn't an example we're meant to get lost in the details of. We don't want to try to compare the stages of kingdom growth to, to this, the stages of wheat and saying, okay, I think we're in the, the ear of corn stage, but not quite. That's not what the point is. The point is that we're supposed to consider the whole process. And when we consider the whole process in light of the parable of the the soils, the similarities are obvious, right? The sower sows the word, the revelation of the kingdom. It will bear fruit. Therefore, the thrust of this parable, the main idea is that God's kingdom will grow to produce a harvest. And the real payoff comes, though, from considering the sower in our parable here, the man who scatters this seed on the ground. He scatters the seed and then goes about his life. He sleeps and he rises and goes about his day. And this not only suggests the passage of time, but what does it also point to? It points to his complete lack of involvement in the unseen process that is taking place beneath the soil. While he sleeps and goes about his day and time passes, the seed begins to grow. And it ultimately produces a harvest. Now, we could try to poke holes in this, right? We could say, well, hold on. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, right? This guy has to maintain the field. He has to weed it. He has to, you know, make sure pests aren't there. He's got to water. I mean, come on, he does stuff, right? That's not the point. The point we find is in this key phrase. He does not know how. The man doesn't know how it grows. The earth does it by itself. He can, he can react to the growth. He can manage it. He can, can, he, can, he can do things to try to help, but he doesn't know the actual what's causing that seed to grow. He can't do anything about that. So what, what's, what's the point? The point is, that God is growing his kingdom. He does not need man to do it. God grows his kingdom under his sovereign hand, and it will grow, and it will come to fruition. This is the most sure thing in all of creation. However, he has invited man to be a part of the revealing process. God's people spread the, the, the revelation of the kingdom like seed. And then they, they stand back and watch as the kingdom of God grows. Paul says much the same thing in 
1 Corinthians 3.6, doesn't he, referring to gospel growth among the Corinthians? I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God gave the growth. Again, we might be tempted to say this. Well, if God's going to grow his kingdom no matter what, then I'm, I'm just going to sit back and chill. No need for me to get involved, right? Paul would look at us with a look of unbelief on his face and say, what? It's for this reason that Paul says he worked harder than anybody. The inevitable nature of the kingdom of God is not the reason we sit back and do nothing. It's the very reason we do something. It's the very reason we're active in it. God has invited us to be a part of his kingdom expanse. We don't want to miss this train. God's kingdom is growing and expanding, and that is the promise, and that very promise is the reason why we engage in evangelism, discipleship, missions, taking the word to the ends of the earth where it has not been preached before unreached people groups, the Bengali Muslims in Bangladesh, the Said in India and in Pakistan, the Pashtun in, in Pakistan, the Yemeni Arabs. The reason we take the gospel to unreached people groups in Mexico, where the Larsons are, or in Turkey, where Matthew and Kaylee are, are because the promise is that there are people there who are a part of this kingdom That's the promise. And you think of the age of the kingdom as it's in all of biblical history. Think of the privilege it is to be invited into this age. The God who orchestrates everything has orchestrated it as such that you and I are here in this age of the kingdom. Do you think he doesn't know what he's doing when we look at us and and think, well, I should, I'm not the one called to do this. No, he put you here for this purpose. Precisely for this. Could have put Paul at this stage in history, and Paul's amazing. But he didn't. Just put Noah, Liz, Vivian, Emma, Taylor at this point in history. And doesn't mean we won't face resistance. Paul says in Acts. Uh, We read in Acts 9 through 10, God telling his people, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. The the point is that we won't always not face persecution or tribulation. But the point is, is that God has people in this city, in Charlotte, he's brought the nations to us. And he will grow his kingdom. We are not in, we are not, we are, we are not essential, but we are invited and we are instrumental. So we're invited to kingdom expanse and we're instrumental in it. We, we're like the, the violin in the hands of a, of a musician, right? When, when you hear a great piece of music, piano, guitar, violin, I used to play the saxophone, doesn't mean it was great. But when you hear 
great music played, you don't say, you don't praise the piano, right? Now, some of us, I know, really get into instruments and finely crafted things, and we might really enjoy that. But the, what we praise is the musician. He's a great musician, whether he plays that instrument or not. We don't play, praise the instrument, we praise the musician. God is the great musician of kingdom growth, and we are invited to be instruments in his hand. We're invited and instrumental, not indispensable. God is indispensable. We are privileged partners in gospel, gospel expansion, but we're not paramount. God is paramount, and he will not only grow his kingdom, but he will grow it into the greatest kingdom the world has ever known. Look with me at verses 32 through 34. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like the grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So if the parable of the seed was about the nature of the kingdom's growth, here we have a parable about, about the, the nature of the kingdom's humble beginning and its inevitable breathtaking destiny. And Jesus, he is speaking in some hyperbole here. He says the mustard seed, while being the smallest seed on earth, and we actually know it's not the smallest seed on earth, but in this context, it would have been the smallest seed these people have known. But, but again, we're not poking holes in this. Jesus created all the seeds that he knows what the smallest seeds on the earth is, but he's very good at uh, contextualizing to people who need to hear it. So, his point is that the mustard seed starts off humbly and unassuming. And the same was true for the kingdom, right? Born into a carpenter's house of a poor virgin. In a stable with beasts and, beasts and straw and everything that goes with it. It comes through a man that Isaiah tells us had no beauty, no form or majesty that we should look upon him or desire him. But that man lived and died and started a kingdom that's going to be greater than the world ever knew. Just like the, the mustard seed ultimately outpaces and outgrows, outstretches and outlives all the other garden plants, so too will this kingdom. The point in the illustration is that it started off small and it ended up the greatest. And trees are often used in the Old Testament to describe the kings and kingdoms of the world. The book of Daniel, which we heard this morning, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and his great kingdom of Babylon is described in this way as a tree that puts out branches and all the birds of the air come and make nests and the beasts dwell in its shade. And there have been some incredible kingdoms in the world, perhaps one of the greatest in terms of contiguous Size was the Mongol Empire. It covered 22% of the earth. Or think of the British Empire at its peak, 24% of the earth it covered. And we can't help but think of the Roman Empire, which would be in the context that Jesus is, is teaching this, lasted for almost 1,500 years. And yet these kingdoms in all their greatness never even covered a quarter of the earth. Didn't even last 2,000 years. The nations are like a drop in the bucket and are counted as dust on the scales to God. He raises up kings and he removes kings. 
This will be true of every nation. As we read, they will blow away like dust and be thought of no more, even our nation. This is the very thing Daniel prophesied to King Nebuchadnezzar when he interpreted his dream. All the kings of the earth, all the kingdoms are like a great statue that would be torn down by a rock that would strike that statue's feet and crumble. And that rock would grow to become a great mountain that filled the whole earth, the kingdom of God. Today, there are Christians on every inhabited continent on the face of the earth. More than any empire has ever had citizens. This kingdom has continued to grow in the face of persecution and tribulation for over 2,000 years. And if you were to count the Old Testament saints, even longer. Though now, even unassuming in so many ways, the kingdom of God will cover the face of the earth. And all those in it will have refuge. When Christ returns, he will bring the kingdom in its fullness, and it will be a kingdom of praise made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who have sought refuge in this kingdom, praising their God. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So the thrust, then, of these parables taken together is this. God's kingdom has been revealed, and it is inevitable. You must respond to it. You are either a part of this great movement of God's kingdom or not. There's no in-between. And the natural question then that we're all anticipating is, and hopefully we know the answer to by now in Mark, is how do you get in this kingdom? Verses 33 through 34, Jesus is the key to the kingdom. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The disciples, by virtue of their union with Christ, are insiders in the kingdom. Now, we have this phrase, as they were able to hear it. So, what does this mean? Some hear this, and they eventually turn away from it. They don't want to hear any more of it. Others hear it, and they are able to hear. God gives ears, and they listen, and they seek They're with Jesus, and he explains everything. Only by union with Jesus is one an insider in the kingdom. This is because, as we've been highlighting throughout this sermon, Jesus is the revelation of God's kingdom personified. Jesus is the Son of God, the living word. He is the burning light, the true light that brings light to everyone. And the darkness did not overcome him. He was the seed that died and was buried in the ground and and rose again to bring forth fruit. Because of his faithfulness, the kingdom will grow and it will bear fruit and it will be the greatest kingdom in which anyone who is in it and taken refuge in him will be a part So the kingdom has been revealed. It will reveal insiders and expose outsiders. And it will give to those inside everything. And it will take from those outside everything. It will be the greatest kingdom that fills the earth. And it will be a refuge and joy for those who seek refuge in Christ. And this is the reality we live in right now. 
When we receive the revelation of the kingdom, we become reflectors of that kingdom. Through our words and our deeds, we, we shine forth as burning lights and witnesses of the kingdom of God. Just uh, Jesus uses the same imagery of the lamp in, in Matthew, and there he applies it to us. Matthew five fourteen through 16. You don't put a lamp under a basket, you put it on a stand. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the hope and prayer is that, yes, we receive the kingdom, and as insiders, we do the works of faith for the world to see. We become the light that Jesus first was by his Holy Spirit. We talked about this in our small group. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that God has prepared beforehand good works for us to walk in. And we will do them by his power. We won't always shine perfectly. And our lives won't always be marked by great works. But we can't get this mixed up. God has made you an insider of the kingdom through Christ. We may not always shine with perfect works, but because of his perfect work, we are firmly inside the kingdom. Whether you feel like your works are not that great or that your faith is weak and you're barely hanging on, the promise of the kingdom is this. Christ is holding on to you. So if you, by faith, are holding on to the promise of the kingdom, then you get everything. That's the promise. By God's grace, we will work in it. John Newton, former slave trader and self-professed blasphemer of God, he knew the horrors of sin and what man could do beyond any of us will ever do. Or experience. You know, God saved him and he went on to become a minister. Most of us know him by being the author of that great hymn, Amazing Grace. Do you remember what some of the last words, his recorded words were that he spoke? He said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. That is the promise of the kingdom. It's the enduring life of faith that will be looked at in the end. Not the one-off singular moments of our lives that we can't see past now. You receive Christ in his kingdom, you get it all. You will be satisfied with his likeness when you awake. We might long for this kingdom now, and we should. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, we will feast with Jesus, with God at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus himself looks forward to this day. Matthew twenty six twenty nine. Jesus says to his disciples regarding the Lord's Supper, communion, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We've, I've mentioned this before, but... It's an amazing reality. Jesus holds out and fasts from this table in his resurrected life now. Why? Because he is fasting on our behalf, ever interceding for us to ensure that we make it to this table in the kingdom. He is holding out and waiting for us. Then we will feast with him. And and while we wait, though, he has given us this table. 
as a foretaste of that great day when we will feast in the fullness of his kingdom. So when we come to this table, though Christ does not eat and drink with us now, he is truly here with us by his Holy Spirit. He he encourages and nourishes our faith as we look forward to that great day when we will cast aside the sins that so easily entangle and, and look to the joy set before us. So we come to this table with that disposition, repentant, thankful for what Christ has done with his body and his blood to bring us into his kingdom. But we also come knowing that as we taste this table, we're getting a foretaste of the kingdom, the wedding supper of the lamb that we will receive with Jesus. And it will be the greatest kingdom the world has ever known. And all those who take refuge in Christ will behold his face. So in a moment I'll pray and we'll come up and we'll sing the first half of our final song together. And then we will come to the table. I'll invite you to come to the table and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. And we'll finish by praising our Lord. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, the revelation of the kingdom that your son, the burning light of the kingdom came in and revealed to us even while we were still sinners. We ask God that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to shine in faith and good works before men, but also by your Holy Spirit, remember that when we are weak, that is when Christ's grip is the strongest around us. We get the kingdom. And so we thank you for this, Father. We thank you for your Son, our great High King, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.